Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. This is episode one, What is Money? My name's Ed Robertson. We'll start with some introductions and then we'll go into the main topic for today. The point of this podcast is to explore in a discussion format between myself and Jeff Eder, co-founder of Progressive Money Canada, all of the research that he's done and the proposal that he's bringing to the table with regard to monetary reform. My background is in enterprise risk management. I've worked in public sector, also in private sector manufacturing. And I've done a fair bit of reading in alternative history, looking into the background story behind the conventional narratives of various institutions into various social questions. And as I got deeper into that, it led me to what I consider to be a central issue, if not the most important issue, and that is the question of monetary reform. So now let me bring Jeff Eder into the discussion. So, Jeff, could you explain a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the monetary reform topic and what motivated you to create the website? Uh, well, it actually started with um, I saw a video that I think you're familiar with, Paul Grignon, and the title of the video was Money is Debt. So that's actually where I first got interested because I was very resistant to the concept. So what I did is I started to look deeper into it because I – didn't really accept that that's the way it worked. And then I found that, true enough, it doesn't actually work like that. Um, fractional reserve banking is, uh, is even when there were fractional reserve requirements, um, it never actually worked that way. They would create loans first, and then they would go looking for the required reserves later. So the cause and effect was actually in reverse in, in comparison to how it's explained in uh, textbooks. So that's uh, how I first got interested, and then I just got deeper and deeper into this whole thing. And um, eventually, um, I co-founded Progressive Money Canada and uh, started the uh, website in uh, 2018. So those are the basic roots of it. Okay. And why did you select the definition of money as our first topic for today? Uh, because it's something that eludes um, a lot of people, including some mainstream economists. However, the definition of money in the textbook is fine, uh, especially for current uh, current day, uh, the monetary system. So it's basically uh, a store of value, a unit of account, and a medium of exchange. Now, there's all kinds of subsets to this very straightforward explanation of what money is. Uh, people get confused because they don't think about it. If you have $5 in your pocket and you can go and spend something, that's as far as it goes. That's all it means to people. It's, you know, it's money. I can spend. I can buy stuff with it. But nobody looks in depth into you know, where that money came from or what it actually is. Well, why don't we take, take those three elements of the definition that you mentioned and, and go through them one by one. So start with, let's say, medium of exchange. Yeah, a medium of exchange is basically trust inscribed, as has been described by many monetary experts. It's a social agreement 
that, okay, that $5 bill, it's worth $5. It would be like if you and I had created our own money system and I said, okay, uh, this piece of paper, um, I'm going to write a five on it. Uh, Ed, you sign it here. I'll sign it here. And let's say we've got five people. They all sign it to legitimize this is worth $5, considered an IOU or whatever. But between the five of us, we'd all agreed that that's worth $5. That's money. That would apply to the normal fiat currency that we're used to, as well as um, alternative currencies or poker chips, anything like that. Absolutely. So what about the second element, store of value? And does that mean that there's an intrinsic value to the money? That's a really good question. There doesn't have to be any kind of intrinsic value whatsoever to money. And our current monetary system is a perfect example of that. The majority of money that we use in mediums of exchange is done with digital money. So this has no intrinsic value whatsoever. These are just simply numbers and databases. And when you consider what actually backs it, which is nothing, almost all money that's in circulation is considered uh, bank money. And the origins of that is uh, privately owned commercial banks creating that money through the loans process. So all the, almost all the money in existence right now is through a long succession of loans that have been issued where money has to be paid back eventually. That's why it's considered uh, money as debt, as the video, Paul Grignon's video uh, establishes. And everything in his video is good, uh, with the exception of his description of the current system being fractional reserve. It does not work like that. You can use the rest of the video to compare to the existing systems and the flaws in it. All right. So if, if we're considering the second element of the definition store of value, it's not intrinsic value, as you've made clear. So it must mean that it's a store of value in the sense that we all have confidence in the operation of the economy itself, that this medium of exchange will be exchangeable for goods and services that are extant, that are available. So that's what's backing the currency. I'm not sure if it's a, an explicit agreement or a social contract or whether that's just a, a convention. You summed it up perfectly. Uh, so basically, when uh, a bank issues a loan, <clears throat> um, it doesn't get that money from anywhere, I think you're aware. So basically, it enters uh, a loan on the asset side of its balance sheet and creates a deposit by entering numbers into a database into the deposit side, which would be in your account. And that is only backed by your promise to go out there and Unlike a bank that can create money out of nothing, you have to actually go out into society and do something of value to earn money through that social agreement that, okay, this money is worth something. So through your efforts, you have to make that money plus the interest to pay back that loan. There's so much that could be said there, but let's let's stay on track and just cover the third element of the definition, which is a unit of account. The way I understand this is you can't elaborate and grow a, a complex economy without a unit of account in order to measure things, the, the, the net worth of your business and our stock and, and so on. Is that what you understand by a unit of account? Yes. And again, it's, it's arbitrary. It's a social contract. It's something that we've all agreed to accept as, okay, this represents $5 and I can buy $5 of stuff with it. It really is that simple. All right. So, you know, one of the crucial distinctions in the definition of money that I've come across in my reading is 
this may be going where you said you didn't want to go, <laughs> but it's the distinction between either a commodity or a public utility or infrastructure. So in the Austrian school of thought, for example, they, they insist that money must be a commodity. And there they, they have the argument going back historically to the use of gold. And as we go forward, the intrinsic value, as you explained, is really unnecessary. It's simply a marker. It's a counter. This whole distinction between commodity versus a public utility or a piece of public infrastructure, how do you, how do you see that? Well, our current monetary system is proof that uh, the unit of account does not have to be have any intrinsic value whatsoever, because most of it is uh, is bank money, digital in form, and approximately well, less than 2.4 percent. The last time I checked was, which is a couple of years ago, is actual hard currency, meaning banknotes. The rest of it in circulation is digital money. And uh, I'm sure you're quite aware that um, your transactions rarely, rarely are are used in cash. It's almost always digital or a, some kind of electronic payment system that you are using. Um, so that right away defeats the argument that there has to be intrinsic value in a unit of account or money. I can go much deeper into that topic to challenge the concept, in particular, the gold standard. That's another fallacy that you'd have to return to uh, money being backed uh, by gold to prevent inflation. Well, that's, again, totally untrue. Basically, as the money supply expands, all you do is if you have it backed by gold, it means you reduce the value of the gold so that you can expand the, the gold supply if you have a reserve system. And you'll notice through history, every single gold sis system has failed. They, they mm -hmm. had to either devalue the gold or they had to do something else to increase the money supply. So you can't restrict it to a commodity like gold or silver that's basically finite, whereas the money supply is, you know, constantly in flux, but mostly expanding, you know, as our population continues to increase and the capacities of, of economies continue to increase. So it, it seems it's a control issue. If you're the, the one who has the gold, and we know from many reports that central banks have been purchasing gold, maybe they have a vested interest in perpetuating this story about having gold as the backing for currency. The whole thing is a strange psychological trick. As long as the unit of account is not corruptible through a counterfeit, as long as you have proper controls, then the, the money itself can have no intrinsic value but simply be a counter. There's another aspect with respect to inflation that is important. I heard the argument that people object when there's an influx of money, new money being created and injected into the economy in any monetary system because they think, well, that's inflationary. But the argument that I heard was, wait a minute, it's not inflationary if the backing is there. So if you inject money into the economy that has no backing, that's just uh, gratuitous, then yes, indeed, it's inflationary. It's going to devalue the individual unit of currency. But if you inject new currency that has a solid backing, that is, it's backed by a reputable promise to pay goods and services, then that's not inflationary. That simply enables the economy to function. Do you, do you agree with that distinction? Yeah, I would agree. And I would go a step further and say that if money is created for some kind of productive purpose and Progressive Money Canada advocates creating money for things like Medicare, education. Those are all productive uh, enterprises. 
So money could be created debt-free and injected directly into those programs, and they are not inflationary. It's really a right-wing talking point that any time the, the government spends money for the benefit of people, it's a problem. <laughs> and any time that uh, you know, corporations are taxed fairly, that's, that's, that's a real problem too. Because it's that the trickle-down theory of economics where they think that large corporations and people with money are the only ones that know how to provide a productive use for the money. It's totally fallacious. There's all kinds of reports to back it up. There's an IMF report that I usually reference. Um, and again, it's not the IMF bank itself. It's, it's researchers that the IMF hires. So these people, they discover things like, well, yeah, the concentration of wealth is because we don't have fair taxation. It keeps increasing the gap between the very rich and the very poor. But what's actually best for the economy is if you say gave, um, there's been talk about a universal basic income, uh, for example, where, you know, you distribute it to the bottom 20%. That's immediately a boom to the economy because people in that bottom 20%, they cannot save money. They are living paycheck to paycheck, and they spend everything they have into the economy, which, by the way, benefits corporations because it's the large corporations that own the material goods that these people are going out and buying. Um, so then it would be just a question of who covers the cost of that distribution to the bottom 20%, the, the UBI. That's the point with the PMC proposal is that mm -hmm. it will be created uh, tax tax free or basically debt free, um, okay. and in the PMC transition plan, it would be through basically perpetual bonds or some people call it passadoble, but there's already precedent for it. Um, the Bank of Canada did some of this during the pandemic, and I have data to support that. I have one other element to to put into the conversation, and that is barter. Uh, so, of course, the Austrians will go back to uh, some imaginary time in, in the past when uh, when barter was being conducted and uh, somehow a commodity was eventually agreed upon to take the role of money. And that's their, I think it's called the regression theorem, to uh, establish that money actually is a commodity. Can, can I comment on that? Well, yes, go ahead. Okay, so there's a wonderful book by David Graeber called uh, uh, The First 5,000 Years of Debt. And uh, anyway, he, he talks about that, uh, the origins of his barter belief. But it looks like, according to anthropologists, with economists continue to ignore anthropologists, uh, you know, people that actually study what happened historically with regard to trades and money and and goods. And they said, yeah, there's there's no record of that whatsoever. It, it's quite the reverse. So there was, you know, people invented their own credit systems. I'll give you one example. In the barter method, it means that there's a coincidence of wants, which means that, okay, you have exactly what I want and I have exactly what you want. Now we can trade. Okay, right away, that's a fallacious concept because you may have excess vegetables right now and you may need um, feed for the spring. There is no such thing as an immediate coincidence of wants. So basically, that's how they set up credit systems. What they do says, well, okay, you can have half my vegetables, but you have to provide me with fertilizer in the fall, which makes much more sense. Okay. Well, th there's another source on the historical argument uh, that Michael Hudson, he, yes. talks, yeah, he talks about how it's the imperial decree that says this is going to be the currency to establish uh, a medium of exchange in a prescribed format. Well, what Michael Hudson's talking about there is chartalism. 
So that's further down the road. And in fact, in David Graeber's book, he references uh, Michael Hudson. So initially it was, you know, a credit system. And then, of course, there there was kings as, uh, you know, tribes got bigger. And so it's basically, you know, a, a dictatorship. And, of course, the king would establish a monetary system and then would force, you know, the peasants to pay tax based on the currency that he's created. Um, so there were all kinds of peasant revolts because of this, because of unfair taxation. Still, we haven't escaped this idea of monarchy. And it's still celebrated by a lot of people, the same people that monarchy have subjugated. All right. Well, uh, just to stay on the barter topic for a second, there are commercial exchanges these days where uh, barter is facilitated between commercial enterprises. And uh, I know that they have quite a lot of success and they actually expand into uh, fairly broad networks. So can you comment on the commercial barter exchanges that exist right now today? I wouldn't classify it as barter because they use the same unit of account as everybody else does. So when they make trades, for example, I'm reading a book uh, right now, The Tyranny of Oil. It's published in 2008. was recommended to me. I was aware of a lot of the things in the book, but it just kind of reaffirms how, um, you know, corrupt the system is. And so the oil company, starting with Standard Standard Oil, um, had a lot to do with uh, influencing how regulations are written in the government. And deregulation is a big part of uh, the profit enterprise. doesn't matter what corporation is, but deregulation always leads to increased profits. And with the oil companies, they actually created their own exchange. I don't know if it's still active now, but it certainly was back in 2008. I think it's called the International Commodities Exchange. And the reason for they they did that is, again, to hide these trades from government regulators. So the barter thing, uh, again, I wouldn't use that terminology because it uses the unit of account that the rest of us use. So it's not like they're just exchanging a block of goods and services for another block of goods and services. They do it with the unit of account. All right. But what I want to do right now is just review. We talked about medium of exchange. We talked about store of value and unit of account. And we made um, an important point that the, uh, the, the currency does not have to have an intrinsic value. And in fact, it does not. Um, and it doesn't need to in order to have a, a functioning economy. So there I think we, we distance ourselves from the myth of, of the necessity of the gold standard. But what I want you to end with, Jeff, is your message to the listeners about what the significance is about the definition of money and the takeaways for today's episode. Not to get caught up in convoluted explanations of what money is. You can call it a store of value, a unit of account, and a medium of exchange, and you don't need uh, any other definition outside of that. And that fits with all definitions. If you want to go deeper, you can read uh, David Graeber's book, Debt the First 5,000 Years. There's other books like The Lost Science of Money by Stephen Zarlinga. But for the purposes of Progressive Money Canada and its proposals, we want to keep it simple so that everybody can understand it. I'll put a link in the show notes to the books that you mentioned. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Ed. So Jeff is offline now. I'll give you a quick summary of some of the key points we discussed today. First of all, money as medium of exchange. Secondly, as store of value. 
emphasizing that money does not have to have, and indeed does not have, intrinsic value in our system. It's merely backed by the confidence that there is a foundation of productive capacity to make the economy function. Next, money as unit of account. Again, as a social convention. Now, is money a commodity or simply a public utility or infrastructure? Jeff discussed the fallacy of the gold standard. Progressive Money Canada advocates the creation of debt-free money to fund beneficial programs. In the next episode, we'll discuss where does money come from, looking at the actual flows of money in the banking system. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes, and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca.